Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The views, assumptions, and opinions expressed by the Geo Godfather hosts, guests, and callers on the program are strictly their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions or beliefs of Electrocast Media. A conflict can never be isolated. It can never be siloed in a neat little box. You're actually fueling this challenge to the international order by having China watching Russia and thinking, what can we get away with Taiwan? You're seeing North Korea... Iran joining the fray, you're seeing potential spillover to Latvia and the Baltic states. And Putin very much now is conducting a scorched earth policy. So he's not been able to achieve any of his strategic ambitions. So what he'll do simply is indiscriminately lob missiles at civilian infrastructure, irrespective of the civilian costs. And he doesn't care because he is an autocratic ruler. Welcome to the first episode of Geo Godfather Wars, the real talk on understanding how geopolitics impacts you and your world. We're your hosts, Barack Sina, and I'm Leah Tedrow. Join us for a deep dive behind the topics affecting the world we live in today. In an age of disinformation and changing trade and business practices, companies as well as members of the public want to sift between real and fake news and have a deeper understanding of future trends and how global affairs are interconnected. Our security and economic landscapes are impacted by coronavirus, a rising China, a resurgent Russia and a nuclear-aspiring Iran, leading to shifting trade patterns, heightening risk to industries and investment portfolios, creating barriers to entry to foreign markets and market volatility. Today's show is part one of a two-part series on Ukraine, the world after the war, where we'll be doing a broad overview on how we got to this point with Ukraine, Russia's invasion, and its impact on you on an everyday level. We introduce our regular segments of What This Means to You, where we break down the relevancy of geopolitical impacts on your everyday life. And we'll also be identifying which character from The Godfather, yes, the movie, Russia represents to put everything into context, which leads us to why our show is called The Geo-Godfather Wars in the first place. Barack, I mean, this is kind of your baby, your invention, so I think it's it's better for you to kind of jump in here and, and explain why it's called Geo-Godfather Wars. I'm a huge, huge Godfather fan, and I published an article, it was really an essay, in the American Interest in 2020 called The Godfather Wars, 
that were taking geopolitics, especially US-China tensions, to discuss how the Godfather could be used as a model, how different characters from the Godfather served as a model for different global dynamics. And you've got to bear in mind that a little-known fact is that when Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather, he actually wrote The Godfather as a metaphor for the self-sustaining and metastasizing nature of capitalism. So the survivability of the mafia, its endurance, was likened to capitalism. That was his intent. And I think that the genius of The Godfather entails that the plot or even the main characters can be used as models to explain different trends and counter trends that are taking place today. So I think that we should probably let everyone know that when you say that you're a massive fan of The Godfather, it's like next level fandom, as in you named your son after one of the characters. He is. <laughs> going to be in January, seven years old, God willing. I named him Vito. He hasn't watched the films yet, but when I do ask him who he's been named after, he automatically responds, The Godfather. So brainwashing has to begin at a very young age. In our living room, we have two pictures of The Godfather, one of the wedding scene and one of Michael Corleone sitting like the Don in his armchair. And kudos to my wife Honestly, for putting up with my madness. But the most important thing is to take madness to very constructive places as we plan to do here. <laughs> okay, so anyway, now that we've we've established, um, you know, sort of why we, we are calling ourselves what we're calling ourselves and how we got here, let's talk about how Ukraine is how we've actually come to the position that we're in now. You know, so where did this all start? How did this lead into a war and an invasion? And, you know, almost a year later, we're still in conflict. There's a broad tendency to paint decisive action or decisive response as extremism, as gung-ho. And so often policies attempt to fudge. They attempt not to take actors into account and hold them take, to take responsibility for their actions. And I think the indecisiveness, especially towards Russia, has been incredibly provocative. It caused Putin to understandably misjudge the situation and to invade Ukraine because he never anticipated that there would be any decisive response on the part of the West. Yeah, because I think, you know, when he originally went into Crimea, it was literally just the most lukewarm response. It was very much a slap on the wrist and saying, no, bad Russia, don't do that. And there weren't any real consequences. And I thought, I think he really had the very real, maybe delusional idea that, you know, the Ukrainians would welcome him in. They wouldn't resist. And, you know, the, the West would do nothing. And he could regain that territory. I think you're spot on. It goes even earlier to Crimea. So you, if you start with Georgia in 2008, when uh, Putin said that he wasn't going to respect the territorial integrity and inviability of the borders of Georgia, with the separation of Ossetia and Abkhazia from it, um, the US response was incredibly limited. Um, and then subsequently in 2014, he seized Ukraine's Crimea region 
and the US and European response was really limited. Fine, they had uh, limited sanctions, but that just amounted to a slap in the wrist, really a demonstration that the West was just going to take some action. But um, Obama at the time, he, he sort of made a decision to have a very, very limited response because he thought that it would be really provocative to have a more decisive response and it would trigger Russian escalation. But actually, that limited response was more provocative. And in the same vein, the sense that decisive response is provocative, you had Germany and other European states refusing to modernize their forces or meeting the NATO's goal for their members spending 2% of their GDP on defense. Putin looks at that and he thinks, right, you're a spent force. And mm. until the very, very last minute, Germany was incredibly ambiguous on what the fate of the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline would be. So if I was Putin, I would have looked at all these inactive responses and I would have reached a conclusion nobody's going to hold me to account. So he would have been taken incredibly yeah. by surprise when there was strong, strong sanctions when the West decided to start arming and training the Ukrainians. But it never had to get to that point. Ukraine didn't have to get devastated. By being decisive, you're setting firm boundaries. And that was never set. No. And he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and nobody really ever did anything. And I think also I think what he was really surprised about was the Ukrainian reaction moreover than anything else like that. I think Crimea was kind of an easy win because you have a high Russian population there. Um, long, long ago, you know, there was a there was a mass migration of Russians into the Ukraine by design politically um, to always keep a stronghold there and more so in Crimea. And I think he just really believed somehow that the Ukrainians would say, yeah, come on in. You know, you're the motherland. We're really happy to have you here. And uh, that's fine because Crimea has been, for the most part, quite peaceful. You know, he was expecting, you know, sort of reaction. You know, it was all of those rumors that um, the initial soldiers that went in for the invasion brought their dress uniforms and their combat uniforms because they were expecting to 10 days later roll in and then have a parade in the middle of Kiev, you know, and that speaks to more of a Stalin-esque style of leadership that surrounds him. But, you know, these yes men that don't want to tell him the truth, which is quite scary. But, you know, we've been speaking about the Western response to sort of Russia's activity mm -hmm. in uh, towards Ukraine and Georgia. But if we even go back to seeing how he's behaved in Syria, um, how many red lines, declared red lines by US presidents did uh, Putin cross to no response? It was met with absolute no response. So uh, when Russia sent forces to Syria in 2015, and there was a geopolitical angle, this was to the benefit of the Assad regime, a uh, proxy of Iran, Neither the US nor the nor Europe responded, and um, he didn't have precision strikes. He carpet bombed Syria. He devastated Syria. He conducted war crimes in Syria. He's looking at the inaction of the West towards Syria, the inaction towards the West in Ukraine, the humiliating 
running away from Afghanistan that the Biden administration did from Bagram Airport in the middle of the night, completely turning on its allies, it would have been crazy for Putin to have had a different calculus than the one that he had. Yeah. And I think, you know, more to that point, I think, you know, if you look at the history of the U.S., we have not been a, I say we because I'm American, I'm just going to, this the royal we, is that the U.S. has not been a, a good solid ally since the 60s or 70s. And we just proved it again with Afghanistan, with just withdrawing, not telling our allies and just leaving and creating mass chaos, you know, and one that was predicted for quite some time. You know, the, the I think the U.S. has been losing agency in the Middle East and in this region for quite some time, you know, and I think this position of neutrality that you're seeing in the GCC is because they're trying to sort of walk this tightrope between the investment deals that they have with Russia and China and their allies in the West. And, you know, so they're put in a position of absolute neutrality, but also they're being put in an awkward position because the U.S. administration has done very little on the foreign policy position, especially here in the Middle East. What you have is a U.S. that is not doing anything bad, but they're not doing anything good because they're just not doing anything. When American drones are striking uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE or Iran and its proxies are targeting bases where Americans are present in Iraq and Syria. US response has been incredibly limited and Iran that has branded America as the great Satan has little fear of the United States. There will be no repercussions towards it. No, we're a, we're a toothless tiger at this point, and 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 we have been quite feckless in our foreign policy for quite some time. And this, you know, trifecta of sort of Iran, China, and Russia have been, you know, moving in um, into this area and taking over more and more sort of space and more area. And th therefore, the hegemony that the U.S. once enjoyed is is dissipating. And it's not just here in the Middle East. It's globally. It's just really disappearing. We're moving from a unipolar world into a multipolar world. And I think you're going to see more and more of these countries sort of take the lead. And despite Brexit and everything else like that, the U.K. has taken a real lead role in Ukraine. You know, I think they came out of this quite well, you know, when this first started kicking off of, you know, sort of leading the charge and, and, you know, because it is a European problem. And I think the U.S. is kind of sitting back. They're sending equipment, they're sending money, but they're just kind of saying, right, U.K., you take lead on this and we're just going to step back because this is a European problem. And I think, you know, we haven't had a war in Europe for over 70 years now. And all of our wars have been in Central Asia, the Middle East and most of them have involved failed states. And I think, you know, the the NGO communities and, and governments are kind of struggling with the fact that, you know, Ukraine is a sovereign country. It is a functioning country. It functions well. And they are going in and having to completely unwrite everything they know and all the methodologies and what they need to do over the past 20 years from dealing in Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, in some parts of Africa. But that doesn't work in the Ukraine, you know. And I think there was some some real issues on the ground when this first started of agencies like the UN going in and saying, right, this is what you need to do. This is what needs to happen. And Ukraine sort of pushing back and saying, no, we'll tell you what we need and then you will provide the aid for that um, because we are not a failed state. We're still a functioning government. So it's a very different sort of conflict than, than we're used to seeing that we, we haven't seen for several generations. Um, it is a different mindset and it is quite scary. And I think the implications of this, you know, of, you know, Putin trying to create a barrier between himself and other NATO countries 
is is a story that I think the Russian populace has believed. You know, it was a plausible sort of narrative and saying, you know, we get it. We understand why you do it. We may or may not agree with what you're doing. And yes, we have to suffer for a little bit while. And Russians are incredibly good at suffering, you know, more so than I think Europeans and, and the West are for sure. And, you know, they're willing to kind of go along with this. And I think they were kind of sold on that narrative of we understand why you did it and you were kind of quote unquote driven the west has driven you to this response i would just tweak what you're saying slightly in that russia doesn't have civil society no it doesn't but there i'm just is... saying as a perception of the public the i think the perception of the public was basically do it if you can get away with it and if you can do it swiftly it would have been similar to china's calculus because this is how he putin sold it to xi jinping that he was able to do it swiftly the russian population didn't anticipate that there would be mass mobilization there is no civil society in order to disagree uh, to voice any opposition and they would have anticipated it would be swiftly but i think that something that we also have to consider is you know that miscalculation that putin did as a result of um, the west's inactivity or lack of decisiveness was also reflected just a couple of months ago when Henry Kissinger suggested a negotiated ceasefire. So, you know, when you speak about a multipolar world, as a result of that, everyone's talking about the crumbling of the US-led international order that began post-World War II. Now, one of the primary goals of the aftermath of World War II, this international order, was to avert any prospect of a repetition of the first two world wars where there was no sense of the inviolability of defined state borders. States were going to war with one another. European states were going to war with one another in order to conquer territory from one another. The last time that had happened really where there was a mass Western intervention was when Saddam Hussein entered Kuwait in the 90s, and you had an overwhelming response to oust Iraq from Kuwait, and because there was a sense of, hey, look, there's a post-World War II international order that needs to be maintained. Now, when Kissinger says that there should be a ceasefire, a negotiated ceasefire, this is legitimizing the ability of states, the willingness of states of autocracies of authoritarians to go and conquer territory that is sovereign and it's legitimizing it so yeah uh, i think i think and, and, uh, sorry and this yeah. by the way fuels that multipolarity that you're speaking about the response that the united states has to do is precisely to say no this will not stand we're going to be offering support, whether it be logistical support, whether it be weapons, whether it even be manpower, because we are going to shore up the international order as we yeah, see it. I think, you know, the thing that we have to consider here, too, is that the Ukraine is not like a normal sovereign nation. It is incredibly complex. You know what I mean? Because you have a mix of Russians that were embedded in the government and living there inside of the Ukraine. So there's this, you know, this mixture of we're now at war with our cousins, so to speak. The enemy now, which is Russia, was heavily embedded in into communities, into governments. 
And then within that, um, the complexities on the ground of the Ukraine is that you have several sort of shadow governments that operate and run the country as well. And a lot of these are largely, you know, you've got the military there that's running their sort of, you know, own situation. You have the political side of the government. You also then have the faith groups that have a very stronghold. And and it's the, the Orthodox community, the Jewish community, and the Catholic community. And they actually operate seamlessly and very well together. You know, those faith groups, they work well together. They let each other get on with what they're doing. But they all have, you know, their own sort of agendas that they're, that they're pushing. And, and with enormous influence uh, governmentally, countrywide, regionally, community, so you have a very incredibly complex landscape within the Ukraine itself. You know, so I think organizing peace is, you know, is a is a very tricky situation of of doing that. That is obviously being government and now it's under martial law so it's militarily led of what's happening in the, with the Ukraine situation now. But I think we also need to talk about how incredibly delicate the situation that we're in is now because one wrong shot, one accidental missile into a NATO country and we are at war. And I think that people don't, some people may not understand the dynamics of that is that, you know, once an attack is lobbed onto a singular NATO country, which there are several bordering uh, the Ukraine, that then means that all of NATO then has to gather and come to its defense. And that is a declaration of war. And this is a very sticky wicket. I just think that um, I want to echo something that you've just said, which is uh, the risk of this spilling over borders. So just to reinforce what I said earlier, had there been swift and decisive responses earlier, you know, over a decade ago, there would not be the risk today of the spilling over borders. So when you're seeing now Russia receiving munitions from North Korea, cheap drones from Iran, having missiles shot from Belarus. And let's not forget the U.S. equipment in Afghanistan. Let's not forget that little that little nugget, you know. But, but what you're seeing now is that a conflict can never be isolated. It can never be siloed in a neat little box. You're actually fueling this challenge to the international order by having China watching Russia and thinking, what can we get away with Taiwan? You're seeing North Korea, Iran joining the fray. You're seeing potential spillover to Latvia and the Baltic states. And Putin very much now is conducting a scorched earth policy. So he's not been able to achieve any of his strategic ambitions. So what he'll do simply is indiscriminately lob missiles at civilian infrastructure irrespective of the civilian costs and he doesn't care because he is an autocratic ruler this has a great likelihood of this spilling over and the question is how is the west able to minimize the response or minimize the repercussions to the response because that's been their objectives until now how can they limit russia's reaction to everything i think you, you've you've got two major problems here right and the first one being is that putin cannot back down he cannot withdraw right now because that would be massively lo losing face so the west has to give putin a way out and they haven't done that and i don't think anybody knows how to do that i think that is the biggest issue is that he's painted himself in a pretty serious corner 
And so he has no choice but to go sort of scorched earth because he has he it's either now for him it's win or die. And that that really is his mindset now because there's no way that he can pull out because he would lose massive amounts of face, especially now that he's declared mobilization. You've got mass migration out of Russia from, you know, military age men. You know, they're in droves in all of the stands in Georgia. They're flooding over the borders, you know, trying to get out of Russia. So he's losing popular support. People are leaving. They doesn't have the bodies. He's got a military that is very poorly trained. And now with the mobilization, they're getting at maximum two weeks of training when they're coming in and giving World War II equipment. I mean, this is not a well-equipped military, and he's suffered massive losses, far more than I think he ever anticipated. So he doesn't have a choice now. There was an intelligence report that came out that the Biden administration uh, reported about a week ago saying that there was already dissent within the Kremlin. So I think that America at the moment now is going to have, it's going to have to adopt an approach of targeting top Kremlin officials, top military officials, and attempt to wean them off, pick them off, to alienate Putin within the Kremlin, threaten and incentivize people around him, because anybody with eyes and ears will see that this is not sustainable, that he will run Russia into the ground. So that's going to be the United States' approach to this. I, and, and I think they have to do it quickly because you've got, you have two things that are happening right now. So you've got the winter and, you know, winter is a horrific sort of situation in the Ukraine. And so for the winter fighting that, that is about to ensue and, and a lot of things can happen, you know, within that. And, you know, that is going to hurt his supply chains. It's going to hurt his men. They're not equipped for that. So they have a, an opportunity through the through the winter to really sort of turn the tide. And two, it's U.S. public support, right? So a recent, you know, recent statistics have come out and said that the share of U.S. adults at, say, paying high prices for fuel and gas is worthwhile to defend another democratic country. And those approval ratings were at 63 percent in March. They've now fallen to 53 percent. And so people will only suffer for righteousness for so long until it becomes a real bottom dollar problem for them and their families. So this is what has incentivized Putin as well to go to war in the first place, because apart from the inaction, the lack of decisive response to his incursion or his conquering foreign territories, but it's also the fact that he's not seen a willingness of European nations not to be hostage to his energy. He knows now that winter is coming, and will European states be able to get through the winter effectively? To what extent will increased energy prices hurt the European public? Will there be the willingness to allocate funds to Ukraine? Because until Ukraine was conquering territory, when that, until that momentum began where Ukraine was able to assert itself and push Russia back, there was great disinclination on part of the American Republican Party to be involved at all in this conflict. So Russia watches that and thinks, okay, how long, how durable is Western support, especially in an era where people want American leadership to be governed from behind a desk as opposed to militarily. So I think this is a good spot for us to move into our next segment of what does this mean to you? Because we've just hit on some good points about the effects this is having on everyday lives and livelihoods. I think it's important for us to discuss how this is impacting everyday lives in Europe and globally. 
And so to carry on from what we were saying earlier, basically he's running against the clock. He's running against the hourglass at the moment because it's like, can Europe survive the winter? You know, can we, they deal with inflation, cost of heat and energy crisis, cost of living, you know, the other ramifications, you know, like I just recently saw, you know, uh, an article that had come out that said there are about on average five fish and ship shops are closing every week in the United Kingdom because 90 percent of the white fish comes from Russia. How much longer can Europeans and the West suffer in support of the Ukraine? What will happen in the winter and where's that breaking point? And I think he's basically trying to run out the clock of saying, I want Europe to collapse. I want them to not make it through the winter. I want the cost of living to become unbearable. I want to break these European countries, break the West, and at that time, see if I can turn things around. And I think if he can't, if it does survive the winter and they see an upturn, then he's completely, he's he's got no other choice. And I think, you know, another point that I think that we that we should really point out here is that, you know, strategically, I think when Putin did this when he invaded the Ukraine, he made a massive strategic error. And I will tell you why, because for the past, he's basically undone his work over the past 35 years of fracturing the West, of trying to, you know, break apart NATO to sort of, you know, crumble the West a little bit and create divisiveness. And he was actually achieving that. He's undermining his achievement of portraying the Russian military as a really credible international force. Exactly. We know that not only to not be the case, but also when he invaded Ukraine, he undid those 35 years of fracturing the West because they actually came together and became more unified instantly overnight. They reunified, became stronger, came together under the name of a cause, under the threat of democracy, and with a war in Europe, which we have, like I said, haven't seen for over seven decades. So strategically, this was a massive error because he's now reunified the West in some capacity and made them work together on the behalf of Ukraine. And I do not think that he was expecting that. I think he just thought he was going to, you know, get a slap on the wrist and be allowed to go and do whatever because he hadn't suffered any consequences anywhere else. Is the West going to take decisive measures to um, hold Iran North Korea to account, uh, Belarus to account for fueling this? Well, I mean, I think another question, and I'm just going to throw this out there, but I think this is a topic that we'll cover in our next episode in this in this two-part series on the Ukraine. I was speaking to somebody the other day and we were talking about, is Russia going into the Ukraine a diversionary tactic? It's like, create stress, strain all the international forces, put everybody to the max of their limits so China can then just go in and just walk in the door and take Taiwan. Is that a possibility? You know what I mean? Is this a diversionary thing so that you watch me over here doing all of this craziness while Iran and China and, you know, all these other nations that have kind of banded with that trifecta uh, while they go and do other things and take purchase in other areas? So it remains to be seen. I think we're... we're... If it's not been diversionary in intent, it can be diversionary in effect. Of course. Okay, so I think that leads us into our next segment, uh, which is who are the Godfather characters? So I think for this segment, I think we're going to concentrate on Russia and which Godfather character they represent and why. So Barack, it's all you super fandom Godfather guy. Look, I think that if you watch The Godfather, and even if you haven't seen it in 20 years, you ought to have memorized the dialogue and plot by heart. But, you know, some people just aren't that. Oh, my God, I can't. 
if you look, if if you watch The Godfather, Don Vito Corleone, he was really reluctant to get involved in the drug trade, and he knew it was really profitable and that it was the future. But he didn't mind being in the sense retrograde because he feared that it would alienate all his political allies. So he prioritized his political interests at the expense of his economic interests. And there's a scene where he tells Virgil Salazzo, it's true, I have a lot of friends in politics, but they wouldn't be friendly very long if they knew my business was drugs instead of gambling, which they regard as a harmless vice. But drugs is a dirty business. So if you look at Russia, it's had enormous energy trade with Europe. It's been, much of its economy has been propped up by energy. It's not got a vibrant, diverse economy. Yet they sabotaged the Nord uh, Nord Stream pipeline. They inflicted upon themselves sanctions. This was completely unnecessary, this entire conflict. And by doing so, they decided to prioritize identity and political prestige and Putin's own ambitions of empire because he sees himself as an emperor. This is not the first time that this has happened historically. It's happened numerous times historically that political interests are prioritized over economic interests. And in 1913, prior to World War One, Germany's largest trading partner was Russia, and it accounted for more than 13% of its total trade. And yet Germany's economic and political interests diverged, with the former being subordinated to the latter. And prior to World War One, Imperial Germany it feared Russian domination, and German Chancellor Theobald van Bethlehem Holweg was recorded in Kurt Rutzler's diary exclaiming, Russia grows and grows, she, she lies on us like a nightmare. And at the time, Germany feared its encirclement, and they feared that states would regionalize around Russia. And that's exactly what happened. You know, Britain joined the Triple Entente with France, and Russia, and it encircled Germany, but much of it was Germany's own doing. And there's the great threat today that it's not about cost-benefit analysis. You would anticipate political leaders to be rational and think, okay, what are the bottom line benefits to our economy, to my nation state? But autocrats don't think like that. Autocrats don't think in terms of cost-benefit analysis, they think about things that democratic states don't have the luxury of considering, such as prestige and empire. It's incredibly 19th century. So as a result of that, Putin would reflect Vito Corleone because he is prioritizing political power over economic interests. Can I just tell you what my, after all of that, my analysis on the situation, Russia was like, leave the guns, take the cannolis. And the Ukraine was like, it's time to go to the mattresses. After all of that, that's my conclusion. But you're wrong. We're not going to. I'm 100% keeping that in. 100% we're keeping it in. I've got that quote in my article. Leave the gun, take the cannolis is an expression of, hey, look, let's focus on economic dividends, not the gun. Oh, my God. 
See, this is where your madness spills over. Your fandom takes it too far. And I love the fact that we earlier in this episode referenced Game of Thrones of, you know, winter is coming. And so on that very dramatic note, and before we can bring in any more TV and film references, we're going to wrap this episode for this week. Please make sure to tune in next week for part two on our series, Ukraine, the world after the war, where we'll have more insights, analysis, and forecasts on the ever-changing situation in the Ukraine and wider ramifications globally and how all of that affects you. Until then, stay safe and we'll see you next week. The Geo Godfather Wars is an Electric House production. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Raffleson and our producers, Leah Tedro and Barack Ziner. If you like our podcast, please rate, review, and tell your friends and colleagues to listen in. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on ElectroCast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. ElectroCast. Yes.